listening to Affect Autism, where Affect is the number one tool we use in supporting child development through playful interactions. If you're a caregiver looking to implement your own floor time approach, please check the ICDL parent website at the Interdisciplinary Council on Development and Learning for a free virtual floor time consultation or for the weekly parent support meetings. We aim to help you implement your program at home using the Developmental Individual Differences Relationship-Based Model, or DIR, taking into account your child's developmental level, their individual differences, and using your relationship with them to help promote and support their development. Welcome. This week, we have a back-to-school special with Dave Nelson, who's a licensed professional counselor, and he is the Executive Administrative Director at Threshold Community Program in Decatur, Georgia which is formally known as the community school. We've had him on a few times in the past about the community school at the time and about process-oriented learning. I'll put links to those podcasts in the blog post at affectautism.com. Welcome back, Dave. Uh, Thank you, it's uh, great to be back. Yeah, it's great to have you here, especially around back to school time, because I don't know about there, I think you guys um, in general start earlier in the South, but here in Toronto, it's all that's been in the news is back to school, back to school. The public schools are going back. There's lots of um, pushback from people that are worried about COVID. And uh, it's, it's a hot topic everywhere as schools go back around our continent. And you've actually, um, your school's been going the whole time. So I thought it would be um, a great uh, podcast to bring to our listeners this week. So thank you. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I grew up in the north, and uh, even though I have lived in the south for a long period of time, I'm still not fully used to how early we start school here in uh, in the south. So it's uh, August 31st, and we have had uh, a good full three weeks of uh, programming under our belts. Wow, wow. Well, I know um, my son was off as soon as the quarantine started around, I think it was around March 13th or something like that. And um, his school tried to do some online programming and it was not very successful with um, kids that are just not used to online. If they're used to screen time uh, or video games, that's one thing, but trying to have some kind of floor time over the screen is a little bit more of a challenge and it kind of dropped off and there was nothing for a few months and then summer camp started up mid-july so he's been back daily it's been going really well they're taking lots of precautions with all of the therapists are in masks they take fever um, temperature reading every morning they give hand sanitizer to the kids the kids are not wearing masks Uh, A couple of them that can are. They're physically distancing the kids inside the school. There haven't been as many kids, but once everything goes back after Labor Day, uh, it's going to be a different story because there'll be more kids there. And um, it's been going well, I would say. It's, it's, uh, I know with the online parent group at ICDL, I've heard all kinds of different mixed stories. And the majority of parents were very frustrated with the online schooling, because if you have an autistic child who likes to move and is distracted and and all of those things, it's really, really challenging to sit at a computer and pay attention to what may or may not be 
something that is interesting to you and you might be interested to see your friends for a few seconds and then you run away. So I'm really, really curious about how you've been able to maintain the Threshold Community Program since March. Yeah, and I, uh, I'm happy to talk about it. And I feel like we have had some measure of success uh, with our online programming, but um, uh, I'm also certain that we don't have all the answers and, and you know, we work with a very particular uh, subgroup of the population of people on the spectrum. And um, I, I really have a lot of empathy for uh, all of the different stories that you're hearing out there. And I'm hearing those stories as well. But for us, just to provide a little bit of context, uh, you know, we're in the state of Georgia in the South. We're certainly one of the states who's struggling with um, pretty high numbers related to the virus right now. Uh, and so, uh, you know, like you, we, uh, we closed down that second week of March uh, and we began doing virtual programming from uh, mid-March through the end of our spring semester, which was the end of May. Uh, and uh, then we made a decision to remain doing only virtual programming for our summer sessions. Uh, and then ultimately, uh, as the numbers started to go back up at the end of the summer, we realized we needed to, to stay uh, virtual as well. So now we're, what, whatever that is, six or seven months into doing virtual programming. And I think we've learned a lot and we're doing uh, a, a lot more and a, a lot of things more effectively than we did. Uh, I think it's, it's hard even now to go back to March and think about what we were all thinking, but I don't think any of us were anticipating at that point that we would need to be sort of planning for the long term in terms of online programming. So um, <clears throat> we were in those early months, we were doing a lot of experimenting with how much, uh, how much synchronous uh, interaction, how much live online interaction we should be doing versus uh, giving assignments or planning activities that people would then do after they disconnected from us. And what we came to realize just sort of philosophically or conceptually is that, um, you know, this is a program that's about relationships. It's about interaction. It's about reciprocity. And that means we need to be uh, synchronous. We need to be connected as much as we possibly can even though that, that does then mean having to work through some of those issues that you brought up. People who struggle to sit in front of a computer and stay still, people who need a lot of <clears throat> you know, tactile or other kinds of sensory input in order to stay connected. Uh, we still have ended up feeling like we are the most successful and the most creative when we were doing a lot of live online together. So, Moving forward from March, April now to August, September, uh, we have a program set up in place where we are meeting with each of our students or participants, either individually or in groups, um, at the top of every hour throughout the school day. And a session might run a full 60 minutes or it might run 45 minutes or it might run uh, 30 minutes, uh, but really we're, we're staying as connected as much as possible for all of that time. Um, and what that has then compelled us to do is to get more creative about how to use the technology, how to work with this medium. Uh, and I, I think we've come up with some, some, yeah, good ways, which I'm happy to talk about. Yeah, that's, I can't wait to hear about them for sure. 
And I just realized that I forgot to describe <laughs> what exactly Threshold Community sure. Program is or ask you about that for our listeners who aren't familiar or haven't heard the Community School podcast. Uh, do you want to talk about your program and maybe what led to the change from the community sure. school to Threshold, Threshold Community Program? So uh, we started in 2005 as the community school. We were at that time a, a, a middle and high school uh, for specialized students, mostly students on the autism spectrum, but not exclusively or, or always specifically that way. Um, but, uh, and then over the, the next five to 10 years, we began doing a lot of um, post-secondary work. We were supporting young adults uh, in the work, uh, in the work of transitioning to independence or to college or uh, to careers. And, um, you know, by the time we got to 2015, 16, 17, that was at least 50% of the work that we were doing. And so the name, the community school became a little bit outdated because we were, in fact, much more than a school. Uh, and it was sometimes creating some confusion uh, out in the marketplace because people didn't realize that we were doing that young adult post-secondary transition work so much. Uh, it was important to us to retain the notion of community that we create a community within a larger community and then are you know supporting people in transitioning out into their own communities. Uh, and, the, and the word threshold just really I think connotes that idea of uh, a transition moving from one place to another crossing from a smaller world into a larger world. Uh, so we took school out of the name, turned it into a program. We still are accredited as a school. We still provide middle and high school education. About half of our participants are under the age of 18, and about half of them are over the age of 18. Well, I certainly plan to do more podcasts with you over the coming years because my son just turned 11, and although he's developmentally maybe around a neurotypical age five or six, I've seen that progression from toddler interests and, and toddler tendencies to, you know, school age tendencies and even in the cartoons that he's watching and everything. And um, he started to have stinky armpits and that whole puberty process is beginning, which is terrifying me. <laughs> and for listeners, we, we did a fantastic podcast uh, a few, uh, maybe a year ago or so, or more now on, um, and then comes puberty. And so uh, I definitely recommend that. Dave is, I would say, top expert in that field when it comes to- I know a lot working, about puberty, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> working with children on the spectrum in that age group. And I know uh, Dr. Gil Tippy had told me from the start, Dave Nelson is the floor time guy for adolescents and young adults. So kind of um, this is certainly interesting for a lot of parents who find it challenging to find information about the older population. You know, there's tons of information out there about kids, but what about when they're transitioning and, and going into the older age groups that, that you service, which is amazing. So I guess, um, it's great to hear about your program in general, but since we're focusing on COVID, I would love to know how you structure the day. And because you're using the Developmental Individual Differences Relationship-Based Model, or DIR floor time, and again, our podcast that talked about the process-oriented learning, 
where you're you're working together and and you're you know it's all about the relationship as you said right. how in the world does that work on the computer yeah so a couple of things uh to think about one um although there are limits to uh describing people based on their age i think in some ways we do have a little bit of an advantage in that we are working with adolescents and young adults so um you know sort of developmental profiles notwithstanding this is a group of people that's probably relatively more experienced with technology relatively more capable of being in front of a screen uh, and again that doesn't apply to everybody uh, but um, i really appreciate the challenges of people who have uh, school age but very young children you know four five six seven eight year olds that's um yeah that's got to be challenging uh, in terms of figuring out how to really engage them and keep them connected. Again, you know, developmental profiles, I think at the end of the day are more important than age profiles, but um, we do have a little bit of an advantage in that a lot of our participants are very comfortable on technology. Uh, the downside to that, I will say, is that um, when we work with people in person, Sometimes we struggle with the issue of um, <clears throat> an adolescent or a young adult being really distracted by their smartphone, getting their phone out in the middle of class or middle of activity. Um, in this online environment, that is a much more challenging issue to address. So we have people who are connected to us and participating and also playing a video game at the same time. We're also doing something entirely different on their computer. And as you well know from your Zoom experience, you can't always tell whether somebody's doing something else. Sometimes you can see the flicker in their skin, you know, if they're looking at things on their computer screen. So- Well, actually, uh, Dave, I have that trouble with my husband as well. So it's not just uh, kids on the spectrum. <laughs> so it's, it's absolutely true. I think about my own behavior in online meetings and I'm much more inclined to be, uh, distracted or you know otherwise engaged uh or for those of us who have continuing education credits that we have to get and now getting all of those online um that's sort of i think almost a running joke you know that you're going to be getting a lot of your work done while the continuing ed class is going on because there is a fair amount of dead time or downtime so that's an interesting challenge that we have addressed but not solved yet um, but to just sort of talk about that for a minute, one of the things that we do is um, we're really pretty uh, both transparent about what we're doing with our participants and also pretty assertive. So, for example, if I'm, if I'm working with a young man who's, you know, clearly distracted by a video game, I'll just point that out. I'll say, you know, you're on a video game and we're actually in the middle of a session right now. Um, you know, can you stop doing that? I have no way to enforce that um, and it's not as if I if that person were in person that I would be physically stopping them from doing it anyway um, but uh, what I have found and what we are finding is that even though people may struggle to stop or shift gears uh, they appreciate kind of the honesty and directness that we're bringing to it and a lot of times people are saying yeah I know I get distracted by this or it's easier for me to listen to you when I'm doing something else. And whether or not that's true, it's at least an honest, uh, they're being honest about their perception uh, in that regard. So 
Um, yeah, that's, I think, just one of the, the most interesting new challenges that we've had to face is that kind of multitasking uh, thing. And is it fair to say that most of the students that you're working with, or whether they're students or young adults, have quite a good relationship with you and your staff because they've been with you for a few years? Or are there new students coming on? Because yeah. that probably makes a huge difference as well. Yeah, it's an interesting question. And um, it certainly has been easier to support uh, some of our participants that we already know and that we have known well. Uh, we did, you know, March when all this started to happen was kind of the middle of our admission season. So we did ultimately admit two new uh, families, two new participants to the program. But what we also realized in that process is that as long as we were virtual, there was a certain, certain kinds of profiles that we were not going to be able to evaluate well enough and admit and probably wouldn't benefit enough from a purely virtual program to admit. Uh, and we also had a couple of families who have been part of our program for a long time that had to say, yeah, this just isn't working for our child and we're not going to re-enroll, at least not on a full-time basis. So I do think there are more restrictive limits on the kind of profile that we can really work with well. There's no question that already knowing the person helps, helps quite a bit. Um, and we still have had a lot of interest over the past couple of months with people seeking hourly service. Uh, and, um, and we have to go through the same process of evaluating whether somebody can benefit from doing counseling or floor time or tutoring through this medium. Uh, and uh, sometimes it's just, you just have to try it out and see, uh, but um, it's, uh, this format really requires a lot of reliance on language processing, on being able to verbalize uh, and to understand language uh, fairly rapidly. Although we can talk a little bit about some of the ways we've tried to work around that or mitigate that. Um, but it does also, uh, it works better for somebody who is able to regulate their motor system fairly well and who can sit for periods of time uh, in, in front of a screen. Uh, to expand on that motor system piece though, some of the ways that we have uh, worked uh, to broaden, uh, broaden our ability to connect with people who don't sit still well, we're actually doing a lot of physical movement activities. Uh, so in some cases we've got um, wireless webcams and wireless earbuds so that we, the uh, the staff person can move around uh, and then, you know, we're doing yoga classes or we're doing, I do two, teach two fitness classes. Uh, and it's, uh, I mean, I also participate in a group fitness program in, early in the morning for myself. And, you know, so I have the laptop set up outside and I'm doing my exercises in front of the laptop. So we're doing a lot of that same kind of stuff. Um, and that has helped a lot. We also, I think, are being more intentional about uh, encouraging people to take specific movement breaks. So for example, there's one young woman that every 15 minutes, we tell her in a really high affect way to go swing on the swing for five minutes. And she goes away and swings on the swing and then she comes back. Uh, we have also created a lot of uh, curriculum ideas that, that have movement built into them. So for example, uh, 
Uh, it might be some sort of in-house scavenger hunt. You know, everybody go find, uh, you know, your favorite food item and bring it back. So then people are running, you know, to the kitchen and then coming back. And uh, so there's kind of a show and tell element to that, but also some movement built in. So as we have spent more time in this medium, I think we've figured out more ways to build some of that movement in uh, and de-emphasize the just sitting still in front in front of the screen aspect. Now, are you providing all of the clients with technology or you mentioned wireless webcams and earbuds or are they expected to have that? How, how are you doing that? So uh, in most cases, um, we are not, we're not, no, we're not expecting participants to have wireless earbuds and webcams. Uh, and there've been a few specific situations where we have had to support families around figuring out how to, how to have the right technology. Being a private program, uh, you know, we have, um, we certainly have some socio socioeconomic diversity in our program, but I think most of the families do have a laptop or a computer that can be used. So um, in most cases, that hasn't been a particular issue. It's actually been a little bit more of an issue in terms of our staff working from home uh, because, you know, we're not a wealthy program. We don't buy computers for everybody on staff. So now staff has been relying on some of their own technology. And so we have supplemented that in some cases with uh, second webcams or, or wireless earbuds or, or, or those kinds of things or a, a better laptop to be able to handle the uh, the demands that something like Zoom or Google Meets puts on the, on the technology. Um, but, you know, there's also a number of our families who uh, I think are struggling with that technology issue because they have two or three children who are all now doing virtual learning and having a private space is a particular challenge uh, for uh, some of our families because if you got one or two parents who are working at home and you've got one or two or three kids who are working at home, it is really difficult to get everybody a private space, to have your bandwidth working okay, to have enough technology. So those are some challenges that I know our families are facing. Um, and for us, we treat ourselves as a therapeutic program. We really try to protect the privacy of our participants. So we really don't want parents or siblings walking through the back of the screen or seeing what's going on or hearing other participants in other locations talking about themselves. So uh, that too creates some challenges. And I, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm personally in the same situation. I now have, you know, two adults working at home and a 12 year old uh, stepdaughter who's doing school online and we don't have a huge house. And so getting everybody strategically placed so that they're close enough to the modem but also separated enough from each other so that we don't hear each other is, is a little bit of a, uh, yeah, it's a little bit of a Rubik's cube. And uh, who would have thought we would be in this situation back in March? I, I saw two of your OTs present at uh, the conference held by Interdisciplinary Council on Development and Learning uh, presented by the Rebecca School. And literally a week later, we're in shutdown and None of us could have ever foreseen that this was going to be a reality, even though, I mean, some people say we've, in theory, known about it, the possibilities. I think nobody really, really understood it. And now we're all just sort of winging it as we go. And, and certainly, um, 
it sounds like you guys have really put in place some really good structures and curriculum ideas. I love the idea of the scavenger hunt. Well, and, and let's come back. You had asked about sort of how we structure our day. Um, we, what we wanted to do is create a schedule that would work when we were completely virtual, that would work when we were phasing back in, in a hybrid program, and that would work when we were fully in person. And one of the things we really wanted to allow for was the situation where, um, you know, the metrics of the virus uh, were such that we were offering in-person programming, you know, phased in in-person programming, but that we might have families or participants who still wanted to be at home. So we wanted to be able to have a program that would work with some of a group in person and, and, and some of the group uh, virtually. And in fact, we have one participant who, um, for a number of reasons I won't go into to protect their privacy, but they are now living out of it. They are not in the Atlanta area, so they are only attending remotely. So even if we go back in person, they will continue to participate remotely. Um, so what we've created is a schedule that, um, whereas we used to have sort of 45 minute periods and sort of different length periods for different kinds of activities, we now start every period at the top of every hour, uh, 10, 11, 12, one and two. The period at the beginning of the day is, um, it's easiest to think of the 9.30 to 10 period as like what we would be doing if people were coming in person. They'd be getting their temperature checked. They are, they'd be getting those questions checked. They'd be getting, you know, escorted to the right place in the building so that they were, you know, socially distanced appropriately. They would be going to their pod, which is, you know, the smaller cohort that's going to be in one end of the building compared to the other cohort in the other end of the building. So we built into the schedule this 30-minute period for just getting everybody situated properly and checked in and all that kind of stuff. Online, we don't need to do that check-in in the same way. So that has become more of a, almost like a counseling check-in. It just sort of, do you know what your schedule is? Do you have all the Google Meet links that you need? How are you doing today? Have you gotten some breakfast? You know, those kinds of more generalized check-ins. So that's what we do uh, in the first half hour of every day. Um, and to be clear, we don't do that comprehensive, we will do that comprehensive check-in for every student that comes into our physical space. Uh, we're only doing that virtual check-in for people that really need it, because there are some people that are on top of their schedule, they know what they're doing, they're, you know, so we're not doing that mindlessly for everybody. But then 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock on through the day, um, we then have regular periods set up and uh, our total population is split into four different pods. And these are pods that are grouped together roughly by academic need and by, um, in the young adult category, kind of by transition, uh, similarity of transitional needs. So their goals are roughly the same. Um, so that when we do come back in person, those smaller pods will stay together with a subsection of our staff. So for example, I'm in pod two with three other staff people, and I don't know what it is, six or seven participants, and all of our programming is 
contained within that smaller group of people. So whereas in the past, I would have worked across all of the participants and seen a lot, you know, wider range of people, I'm really only seeing these, you know, four or five, six people. Uh, and that will be true when we transition back into in-person programming as well. So it's not until the virus is over and we're back unrestricted that we'll be back to fully integrating everything. So at the top of every hour, people have uh, you know, classes and for academic students, that includes academic classes as well as counseling and floor time and, and affinities groups, interest-based groups that we do. Um, and for those participants that are able to manage it, we keep them live online for 50 to 55 minutes of that hour. Uh, and for those participants whose stamina is not quite as long, we kind of set a target for ourselves of a minimum of 30 minutes live online. Um, and if, if it makes sense to drop off for that second 30 minutes, then we usually provide some kind of activity or assignment or something for them to do independently. Um, but what we have seen is that uh, when we hold the belief and expectation that people can stay online with us, it has for the most part worked. Um, so we're, we're spending a lot of time online with our participants. Um, and then in terms of content, um, I'm, I, you know, I don't do a lot of academic coursework teaching of my own, so I, I can't speak quite as in depth, uh, to that experience as some of the other people on staff will, but, um, the, in terms of a lot of the interest-based work that we do or social emotional social groups or floor time, uh, we're usually really using a mix of uh, technology-based activities. I feel like we have got an amazing um, uh, catalog now of online games and interactive, uh, you know, activities to do uh, that, you know, range from things like Pictionary and categories and stuff like that to, you know, online versions of Deal or No Deal or Family Feud, you know, so we're using technology as creatively as we can. Um, but then the other thing that we're, we're actually starting this week, which I'm excited to see uh, how it will play out, uh, is we've created something called Party Boxes. Uh, that's party with an I, as in we call our students participants. So these are basically participant boxes. And what we're doing is we're filling them with various uh, paperwork or activities or objects uh, that correspond to each of the classes that somebody has. And the family will come by on Friday and pick up their party box and take it home. And in two weeks, they'll bring back the empty party box and pick up another one. Uh, so it's a way for us to, um, again, kind of enhance the creativity. So uh, some, of the, some of the pods have created themes for their party boxes. Um, some, some of what gets uh, sent home are things like math worksheets or, um, you know, sort of mundane kind of, uh, uh, I guess I shouldn't call it mundane, but you know what I'm saying, the sort of more run-of-the-mill uh, school stuff. Um, but uh, we're also sending home fidgets. Uh, I'm sending home a long resistance band to one of my participants for a fitness class. Uh, so we're just going to sort of see how that creativity evolves with this party box over time. And we're hoping that that experience of basically getting a package, getting to open it, 
having envelopes that say don't open until such and such a time will kind of create a little bit more of an emotional connection, a little bit more excitement, but also give us the, the ability to have some, uh, yeah, some tactile objects uh, that are a part of the curriculum. Wow, that's great. So many wonderful ideas. Um, I was going to ask, but I think you answered if it is group instruction or single instruction, but it's around those pods. So is it, so, is it mostly those groups or do you ever have one-on-one -on -one as well? So we definitely, always a part of our program is one-on-one. -on -one. Everybody in our program sees a counselor at least once a week, for example, in, in, uh, individually. Uh, and depending on your profile and the, and the cohort that you're in, you will have relatively more or relatively less group activity, just depending on your readiness to do that. Uh, but we are doing a lot of group work um, and Zoom, or we are actually using Google Meet for, because we're using Google Classroom as a platform for, um, for the, you know, curriculum. But, you know, Google Meet works pretty well for groups. We've all had experience, you know, on Zoom now. So there is, um, there are some limits in terms of how easy it is to get people to interact with each other as opposed to sort of interacting just with the person right in front of them. Um, and there's sort of an just, yeah, it's kind of an odd, um, yeah, metaphysical thing that you're with people but not with people in, in a Zoom context or a Meet context. But um, yeah, we are definitely doing groups. There are uh, group academic classes. There are group social uh, uh, social activities. Um, and as we've done it more, I think we've gotten better at facilitating people interacting with each other. What I think is challenging, you know, for people who uh, and people who kind of think a lot about nonverbal communication, gestural communication, and just sort of the feeling of being with somebody and you know sort of greenspan and dir language is always filled with the gleam in the eye and sort of you know the what you sense from people uh it's a little bit harder to figure that out uh it's a little bit harder to read somebody's affect through uh through meat um but as we've done it more i think we've gotten uh better about it uh and we have found that exaggerating your affect even more is helpful uh, in a lot of cases. And again, there's still people who get overwhelmed by affect. So I, I always caution people against using large affect as a blunt instrument. It still needs to be used, you know, wisely. Uh, but I think bigger gesturing, more affect in your voice, more variation, uh, more movement on screen, I think is really helpful to a lot of people. Uh, but yes, we are doing uh, group classes and sometimes they work well and sometimes they are a chaotic mess and we just keep pushing through and doing the best that we can. Uh, one of the things that's, I, I think, really challenging about group classes um, is, you know, so when somebody gets particularly stressed out or says something offensive or is struggling in some way, um, it's in person, it's a little, the way that we manage that is a little bit different. It's fairly easy to call somebody else into the room to help, to have that person go out of the room or to move the group of people out of the room. Uh, on Zoom, it's a little bit trickier. Um, and 
it's also if somebody is upset and they disconnect on their own, there's a little concern on our part, like, is this person safe? Are they going to harm themselves? Are they going to run out of the house? Uh, so we have some different protocols in place for managing that. Um, but we still, uh, we still do a lot of the same thing. So if somebody, if I'm teaching a group or leading a group and somebody starts to really break down, I will message the rest of the staff and another staff person will come and join the room. And then they'll either go to a breakout room or go to a separate Zoom section. And if they drop off, we might contact the family uh, to make sure that that person is okay, uh, which puts a premium on making sure we know where somebody is located. Are they at their mom's house or their dad's house? Are they at a vacation house somewhere else? Are they not where we think they are? So there's a little bit more uh, uh, sort of planning and forethought that needs to go into that, but essentially we're, we're handling it as we would handle it in person. This just makes me think that you guys could put some kind of guidebook or curriculum or <laughs> you could write a book about this experience yeah, that sure. would be so helpful to other schools and and other programs and have you thought about that and and um well i have a whole bunch of questions but um one was about using google meet versus zoom and you mentioned that you're already using google classroom i imagine that everything is up in the google drives so um the, to, to answer that question about writing the book Writing that book, I think, would presume uh, that, of course, we know we're going to get another pandemic in the future, and I don't know that I'm really prepared to go into that headspace just yet, even though intellectually, I think that's probably a pretty sensible uh, thing to be prepared for. Uh, I do think we're developing expertise. I, I'm sure there are lots of other programs that are also in, in this same process, so hopefully, you know, by the end of this year, we'll uh, we will have a lot of this stuff codified and written down and yeah, we'll maybe be able to share it, share it with other people. Um, okay. But then the other question you were asking that just escaped me, what was it that you? Well, before we, we go to that, just more about that, even regardless of pandemic or not, there are so many parents in different parts of the country where they just have no really good service available at all. And the possibility to have any service, even if everything were safe and everybody were back in schools, the fact that they could have some online access at all would be better than nothing if they have no option to move to a place that offers this kind of programming. So I imagine even just for that purpose alone, I mean, I know I get emails all the time from people you know, whether it's Pakistan or India or somewhere in South America or all these other places that might be even more remote in the world saying, we have nothing here. How can I access DIR floor time to open it up to having some kind of online programming in general? Not that you need another project or need to start another school, but it's certainly a handbook of some kind. I imagine there would be a good demand for it. I, there's no question that, uh, and I think you're seeing this across the uh, counseling and mental health world in general, looking at, you know, telehealth, telemental health, um, that although that's been sort of a common thing for a long period of time, I think you're seeing um, or you're going to see a, a pretty significant explosion of that. And that's going to become a much more entrenched and normalized way of receiving services. And it's not ideal in some respects, but you're absolutely right when you look at rural or remote regions, 
Um, there's a lot that you can do. And uh, yeah, I think we're very proud of the virtual program that we're providing now. And I would feel entirely comfortable, you know, with that concept of, of having an entirely remote program, um, you know, for people that, that, that can't get access to in-person programming. So I'm hopeful that that will be the silver lining to this uh, is that, yeah, the, the clinical and educational world will be able to figure out more and better ways to reach those remote populations. Absolutely. And uh, the other question was just about Google Meet versus Zoom. Oh, I mean, right, right. It, this sort of isn't, isn't particular to, you know, programming for the autism population, but it's, it's a larger issue. But um, I, I just think it's funny that we all assume that it's Zoom, but not everybody's using Zoom. No, and the reason we use Google Meet is um, because we use uh, G Suite for education. So we're uh, contained within the Google universe, for better or for worse. And that gives us a relatively high degree of privacy and confidentiality and integrity of our systems. Um, and because Google Meet syncs up with, you know, Google Calendar pretty well, so does Zoom, but... Um, we wanted to kind of stay consistent and be able to create some internal control. Uh, you know, for my, we actually use Zoom for all of our staff meetings. Uh, Zoom, at least currently, is more feature rich than Google Meet. Although my understanding is that there's an update coming to Meet, which will add in a lot of the functionality that Zoom has. Uh, so, yeah, I personally prefer using Zoom to Meet, but Meet works fine. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's just kind of provides a consistency uh, to our families that, that works pretty well. Great. Um, I guess I was also going to ask, but I think you already answered as well, when do you see yourselves going back to in-person instruction? And I heard you say when the virus is all done, um, <laughs> do you have an idea of a phase in for so, at least some of, like I, I know even at my son's school, some of the families have chosen not to come back. So my son will right. say, so-and-so was on the computer today. And I'll say, oh, okay. And who was there today? And he'll tell me. That's certainly uh, an issue. The, yes, I'll, I'll talk about the sort of metrics issue in a second. But we definitely have some participants who have a high degree of anxiety about uh, going outside, regardless of whether we would be in person or not. I think they would be very averse to doing that. So I think that'll be kind of a clinical support issue uh, moving ahead. Uh, but uh, Beth Champ, who's our clinical director, my co-executive director, um, she has been kind of our COVID expert from day one. Uh, she's got, you know, a training as a scientist in her background and is just sort of enthralled with the numbers aspect of this. So um, we have some very specific metrics about when we will uh, shift into another phase and, and offer some in-person programming. It basically is uh, two weeks of declining cases within uh, the two counties that are that, that we operate closest to. Um, and then there's a corresponding uh, positivity rate percentage on testing that we're looking for. The difficulty that we've got in a place like Georgia is that um, even when we're getting some, some steady declines, we're declining from such an enormously high infection rate. Um, it does appear, and I'm not an expert on this part, but it does appear that maybe the severity of infections are going down a little bit, that hospitalizations are lower than they were, you know, back in April and May. Um, 
but basically we're looking for two weeks of steady decline and a certain positivity, low positivity rate on testing. Then we'll move into uh, some of our early phase two, which will uh, have us partially in person. So mostly outdoor programming. We'll go back to doing our hikes in small groups. We may do some small classroom work, but probably try to do a lot of that outside. And then as we move through subsequent phases, we begin coming back inside, still stay, staying separated in our pods on each end of the hall. Uh, and it's not until um, we get to very, very low numbers that we would go back to basically an unrestricted, um, you know, an unrestricted uh, schedule or plan. And I think it's so much more of a concern where you are versus here in Canada, even though Toronto is the biggest city, Canada's population is, is not nearly as large as the U.S. Right. and you're right next to Florida and they've had so many cases and, you know, just not knowing and controlling where people have come from, where they've gone. And so um, I can imagine that's, and, and also with the upcoming flu season, who knows sure. what's going to happen. There's so um, many unknowns. There's so many unknowns. And I, I think we wanted to have a program in place that would be able to weather most of those things. I mean, if some new natural disaster occurs that we haven't anticipated, that will be something else. But I think we're, uh, we're pretty well set up to be able to manage uh, people needing to be homebound. Uh, mm -hmm. So um, yeah, as long as the internets don't go down on us, then, then I think we'll, we'll do all right. Um, it's clearly not ideal for some families. And I, you know, I know that they uh, there's a lot of our families who would really love to have in-person programming going on, but the reality in this state, and I think all of our families appreciate this, is that it's just not that safe to do that yet. Um, and, you know, the nature of the people that we work with and the nature of our work, even though the, the density of people in a classroom is not enormous, the, the physical intimacy is. I mean, it's really hard in working with a lot of the people that we work with to maintain distance or to not have physical contact. We certainly have participants who come here and invade other people's space with regularity and are you know, working to learn how to manage that. Um, and that's a tough thing to, to be able to work on in the middle of a virus. Mm -hmm. Well, um, this has been amazing. A lot of really good information. Um, if we can end off, I have one parent question for you. Sure. Um, what about a child who is really distracted with visual spatial? So um, they, they might be able to get maybe 10 minutes of online, but only if, you know how you can change speaker view, gallery view. So only if they see one person talking at once and maybe turning down the sound, if they see all their classmates, it's very distracting. Right. You have... OTs sort of advising on those kinds of issues, which I guess is a new arena for OTs too, because <laughs> they weren't thinking of online instruction necessarily, but I, I imagine they can provide some kind of guidance for challenges like that. So we do have a, a young woman in our program who is kind of fits that description. And uh, we did in fact, just um, one of her point people here just had a long conversation with her occupational therapist. And, you know, I think probably most of us who are experienced parents could come up with a lot of these suggestions. It's everything from, uh, you know, using the yoga ball as a thing to sit on, to chewing gum, to having a lot of movement breaks, 
Two, limiting some of the um, some of the technical aspects. You know what the what somebody sees on the screen visually, uh, and in some cases we've had to limit the number of groups that uh, this young woman, for example, would typically be in many more groups. And right now her schedule is a little bit narrower. She's in you know smaller dyads or individual sessions as much as we can manage. Um, just, just to try to manage some of that stimulation, at least until she gets to a point where she can manage it a little bit better. But even the people who are very successful in this format, uh, you know, as we were talking at the, at the outset, you know, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of distraction. There's a lot of visual and tactile distraction with the, with the computer and with other things that you can be doing at the same time. Uh, and we haven't totally cracked that code. We do, for somebody like that, really for all of the participants, we are certainly doing, um, you know, a lot of screen sharing and sort of interactive activities on, uh, on the screen so that we are as much as possible kind of breaking that fourth wall, you know, coming through the screen to be with people. Um, and, you know, depending on the person doing, um, you know, a lot of auditory activities. Uh, I, was, I did a, a, a name that tune activity with groups the other day, you know, so just trying to take as much advantage of the technology as possible uh, without overstimulating somebody in a way that doesn't really work for them. But it's, it's absolutely challenging because you just don't have as many, uh, as many ways to feed somebody's sensory system, at least the, the motor aspect uh, of their system that, that you would if you were in person. I imagine even just like you said, this is sometimes out of their control, but where they sit in the house, um, is, it, is it a room with no distractions? Is it a smaller room or a larger room with echoes? If you can hear the other people in your house, how bright the lights are in the room you're in, if the sun's coming in and it's really hot at the end of the day, uh, all of those things probably make a lot more of a difference to certain people on the spectrum. I know, I know my son, just even driving, if the sun's coming in his window, it drives him crazy. Can't right. stand seeing the shadows beside him. He starts to freak out, but then he won't let me put up a visor on the window. <laughs> so, um, yeah, there's, um, it seems like you guys have really done the best with the situation. So um, it's great to hear, and I'm really grateful for you spending this time with us and to sharing all this knowledge with the listeners. And um, if anyone does have questions, maybe we have educators listening and they can go to Threshold Community Program website, which I'll put on the blog post at affectautism.com. Um, can they also contact you through the website? Yeah, have people reach out to me because certainly the website won't really say anything about what we're doing in the time of COVID uh, right now, but I'm happy to try to share with people as best I can. Um, yeah, what we're doing. Great. Okay. So if, if you have any further questions, you can always contact me at affectautism.com. I can put you in touch with Dave, check out the Threshold Community Program website, and um, it'd be great to touch base with you maybe again next year and see, see kind of what's come along, uh, lessons learned, um, and where we're at by then. <laughs> sure. Look forward to it. I hope we're talking about it in the past tense by then. Oh, yes, we all hope that. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Dave. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Until next time, here's to affecting autism through play.